All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode fifty-seven intro. This is for the podcast, of course. I have Jason Lindgren with me here today, and we are going to go at the new cokes. Um, we ended up with so much research that it became a problem just because of the sheer volume of information. So what I kind of opted to do with Jason is have him run down the typical standard timeline we're handed and point out inaccuracies where we can and uh, other nonsense. But there's a new clip that came to light from a channel called Hoaxbuster that I probably never would have saw had I not taken a look at what the Jungle Surfer was up to, which I always do, and he was covering it. Um, everyone should probably just pause this clip right now, and I say it way too many times in this episode, and just go over to Hoaxbuster and check out his Marie Curie clip where he unveils her as Mercury. As fate would have it, for a long time, I've been looking at the idea of alchemy being used to transmute the world mind with information, media, and these other things. And having seen the Hoaxbuster clip on Mercury and, you know, the trinity for um, alchemy, which I'll cover in a second here just so people have a basic idea. Um, and when I saw his clip, it really got me going to look harder and to try to attach the mercurial idea, the alchemical mercurial idea, um, to the nuclear age that we were handed, which I do not accept. So um, part of what plays into this is the rooster. That's where I kind of did my starting point. And again, I came up with so much information that I'm just kind of parsing it out now. So I'll give a preface now. Um, the rooster plays prominently. And if you watch the hoax buster clip, you'll see why. Uh, the rooster is also a symbol of mercury. And so what I did is I just took some dates for starters, and found, uh, as an example, there's a building that's supposed to be at Ground Zero in Hiroshima. It's called the Peace Building or the Peace Memorial. It's had many, many names. As a matter of fact, it's been renamed three times. The last time it was renamed, and people should look up what they were calling this building um, because it plays into it too. Uh, the last time it was renamed was in 1933, of course, and this is one the main monument for the supposed Hiroshima blast. And that was the year of the rooster, which, of course, relates to the whole mercury idea and alchemy. Um, but there's more. The supposed nukes were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 45, which is also the year of the rooster. And there was a lot more as I went through, but I'll back off a little bit and just try to get some of the occult encoding information that I'm just getting started on here because it's so much to go through and it's so plausibly deniable the way these things are put together that you really have to do quite a bit of research to try to make some solid comments here and there. But just so folks know... When I was in San Diego, I was, I've always grown a lot of herbs. Um, I have training as a chef, actually, that I've never used, but I've always grown things. And there is a alchemical process called spagyrics. It's spelled S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-C. People should look this up because it does show maybe some lower level process of alchemy being used on herbs to get an end result of tinctures and things like this. And the reason I bring this up is because it gives people an idea of the idea of transmuting some physical thing um, into another thing. You know, in alchemy, the idea that's always been put out there is turning lead into gold, this kind of thing. But clearly there was a spiritual aspect that was being hidden. The idea of maybe going to heaven or becoming enlightened, in other words, applying the alchemical process to a human being to make them a higher human, um, these kinds of ideas. Anyhow, 
I'll break down the the, the Trinity um, in uh, in alchemy just so people have a basic overview. And I'm going to go at this from the point of view of plants. And I would point out the first nuclear detonation was again at the Trinity, which can tie it back to the alchemical process. And it was done in white sands, which can also tie it to the alchemical process because there are colors associated. I believe white sands, of course, would be white. I believe that would tie it to salt. But I'm still looking into these things. Anyhow, here we go. Mercury is supposedly a water element representing life essence of the plant. The very alcohol extract of the plant is the carrier of life essence. Now, this is fascinating to me because of the Gerson method I'm familiar with, which has cured cancers and many other diseases. Um, as we get into it, in the very beginning, we break down the idea of the caduceus and the asclepius rod and how the caduceus was assigned to Western medicine and shouldn't be. It's about commerce, about thieves, about crossroads, about all these things that have nothing to do with medicine, where the asclepius rod was basically about plant-based medicines and other things. Um, so anyone who's interested can look up the Gerson method. By the way, if you use Wikipedia, they'll tell you that carrot juice is dangerous. The second in the Trinity is salt. It's an earth element, supposedly, representing the vegetable salts extracted from calcined ashes of the plant body. And this probably references the Negrito process or the blackening, which also probably relates to the bomb drops, um, the, the supposed bomb drops, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, the third element in the Trinity is sulfur, the fire element. The virtue of the plant representing the volatile, the volatile oil essence of the plant. Um, and again, you can look up the spagyric method if you want to know more about this process. S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-C. Now let's talk a bit about the Negrito process, which I'm still trying to tie to the supposed bomb drops at Hiroshima and Nagasaki that were done in the year of the rooster, which relates to the alchemical principle of mercury. Um, it's called Negrito, and people may recognize the base of that word as meaning black or blackening. Um, let me give you a quick definition, one of many that I looked up. Negrito or blackness is the alchemical sense means putrefaction and decomposition. By the penetration of the external fire, the inner fire is activated and the matter starts to putrefy. The body is reduced to its primal matter from which it originally rose. This process is also called the cooking, hint, hint, hint. The black earth is closed up in a vessel or flask and heated. The idea here is to destroy the old and to build new in a way. Um, I'm still looking at the idea of, of how alchemy could be transmuting the world mind into a lower, more animalistic, materialistic mind that is more easily controlled, having been transmuted from a higher mind. But if we consider what's being said here, many people claim that actually what happened where supposed nukes were dropped was firebombing. Um, so the Negrito process may play into this. It's just a little too early um, in, in my research to understand this. But there's more, <laughs> of course. So I started to take a careful look at that dome that is sitting in Hiroshima at Ground Zero, that building um, that was clearly pre-planned to sit there as a monument of this hoaxed event. Um, in, in a lot of the pre-war images, I began to find these really old po postcards 
and they had the Japanese inscription, Busan Shinretsu Khan. And I kept trying to translate this, and finally I think I have an accurate trans, um, translation. And again, I've got to work a bit more on this. Um, it seems to mean chicken breastplate. If that's true, again, we're relating to the rooster. Um, the dome there in architecture is always considered the head. You may see some domes with an oculus, which would relate to the eye. And I don't know, is it possible that the chicken breastplate is that prominent feature just under the dome that was left behind? I can't find a reason why this building, before it was destroyed, uh, had the, the chicken breastplate. And again, that's relying on the translations that I was able to do. So I'm going to do a little bit more just to cover some of the occult encoding uh, in this intro so that we can get into the timeline of Jason's. So right now we are told that no one can go back to the Bikini Atoll, which we are told had a community removed from it, and then all this bombing was done with nuclear weapons to test. Um, this doesn't jive with what we see everywhere else that nukes have happened. There has never been a time when people have not been in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And just so people understand, plants and animals, uh, by definition, have cells in their bodies and would not be exempt from what radiation does. In other words, if a real nuke was dropped, we would expect to see all plant life and animal life obliterated in the same way any living person would be. And yet, at the Bikini Atoll, no one can still go back. It's a very small piece of land. You would imagine, you know, from all the movies you've seen, when someone gets radi radiation pollution, they're put in a shower, basically, and washed off. Um, you know, wouldn't tropical rain have, have washed that place off by now? But that's just one of many incidents we can point to. If we look at Chernobyl, which in my view is just more of the same nonsense and encoding, um, there is something people can go look at. There was an episode of Anthony Bourdain when he took his little film crew with little x-ray badges on into Chernobyl. And again, we see the same thing. Plants have always thrived there. Animals have always thrived there. And if you remember back to your younger years when you were being told about nukes, one of the things you were told is that the half-life or how long a place would be radiated and polluted was either hundreds or thousands of years and there would be all these birth defects. All the plants and animals are thriving there and it's stated in the episode. Um, now that brings us to, to Fukushima. Same thing going on there. In my view, these are likely land grabs, but to make more concrete statements, I would really have to take time to very thoroughly go over each one. And it takes a lot of time, man. It takes about a week um, when I prep for these shows just to take one section like that and thoroughly do it. Um, so I'll be back on it. Um, lastly, I'm going to cover the Nevada sometime called Yucca Flats and, and other names for it, the Nevada test site. The first thing that popped out at me as I was beginning to watch things like Bombs Over Nevada, these old documentaries that are propaganda, is that it was 65 miles from Vegas. There's your 11, and that is often in the Crowley-esque kind of Luciferian mindset, a the beginning of a casting of a spell, in my view, in a negative way. Um, it, you know, Vegas is a funny place to begin with. Um, here, we're, here we were being told back in the day that the mob was public enemy number one and the FBI was after him doing everything they could to shut him down. And yet here they are building a city in, in the middle of Nevada, basically scot-free, where they're gambling, prostitution, drugs, any, any number of illegal activities going on. And for some reason, they could operate with impunity. But 65 miles from there, 
all these supposed nuclear tests are going on. Um, they're even having viewing parties from Vegas to watch the flashes in the sky. They're even getting closer than that where they can supposedly see the blast. And then there's all this stuff you can look up about showgirls in Vegas wearing mushroom cloud bikinis and having mushroom cloud uh, hairdos and all this other nonsense. So that's just a little bit of where I'm at with the kind of mercurially encoded um, idea of the nuclear bomb blasts, and I'll, I'll go further on this at a, at a point later. But what I did was decided to see if I could relate um, the mercury encoding to other things. So I went back and looked at the roots of Western music, or one of the main roots, which is cited to be Robert Johnson, the supposed old blues man. Um, and I found a lot of possibility there, too. Um, if you go look at the symbol for Mercury, um, it looks like the devil. And it seems to be encoding the, the winter solstice when the sun is at its low point, which is often 1221, which is, of course, 33. And that's covered a bit in the Hoaxbuster clip. But you see, Robert Johnson goes down to the crossroad, which is also encoded in the Mercury symbol. Um, and it's tied to Pierre Curry's death, as you will see in the Hoaxbuster clip. Um, I'm finding all this in Robert Johnson with the hellhounds on his trail. One of his songs where he's talking about if it was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, again, bringing us to the winter solstice or the low point of the sun, which, of course, relates directly to, to sulfur, I believe, in the Trinity. But anyhow, there's the kind of occult spiel where I'm going to have to do a lot more research to make more solid foundational comments, but there is absolutely a there there in my view. Um, it just takes a lot of time to go through these things because so much of it is plausibly deniable. Anyhow, let's jump into episode 53 with Jason Lindgren. It's a good one, and we run down the timeline that was required to create the story or his story of the supposed nuclear age. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 53. I have with me Jason Lindgren. Uh, we are going to take a run at nuclear weapons and basically nuclear fission and power in general. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think of what I want to mention here because I haven't recorded the intro yet, um, but I have a list of it. So I'm just scanning through it to try not to double too much. But anyhow, um, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, a channel called Nuke, or uh, I'm sorry, um, Hoaxbuster had done a very damn good clip, one of the best clips I've seen in a long time, that identifies Madame Curie as Mercury. Um, what I did is I went back through and I began to look at whether I could tie the idea of the alchemical Mercury, which shows up in endless Masonic lodges, um, to the entire history of supposed nukes, and I could, and I did. And while we came up with a list that was so massive that it probably would have took three or four hours to put it all down when I added to what Jason had done, um, we've pared it back. So what we're going to try to do here is give you the cogent points for any person with an open mind who actually wants to go out and challenge whether it is true that some government in this world or some military organization actually has the power to push a little red button and destroy this place. I'm here to tell you it's nonsense, but that's not going to change too many minds. So I would urge people to go out and look into the things we're about to lay down. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Uh, how you feeling down there in uh, Louisiana, knowing that your world cannot be destroyed by the push of a button? I slept like a rock last night. 
<laughs> there, there it is. Well, as I mentioned, oh, b- before we jump in, um, in case I forget to mention in the intro, my new website at crow777radio.com is up. Um, it has all kinds of stuff for users, a new forum. So we're already talking about stuff. So there's that. But anyhow, we got even with the paring down of everything, Jason, this is one of the larger lists we've had to deal with. So I'm just going to kick it straight to you and let's see if we can start burning down the house here. Yeah, this is one of those things that, you know, when you say it, you're like, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, nuclear weapons exist. But, and I'm going to challenge the listeners out there, just pull back and think about just how much fraud we've found already in anything to do with a major government. And that's really what this comes down to. This isn't one person's decision. This is this is governments doing what they always do. They're doing things for their own benefit. They got to keep their own narrative so that they can control the situation on a global scale. And and that's exactly what they've done here. They have created this uh, scare tactic that they can destroy anything anytime they want. And uh, you know, I could see why they'd want that. You know. Well, you you know, I would also mention this is almost certainly the hidden hand. I mean, this is the script that runs above governments. And when Madame Curie was unveiled as Mercury, it really began to open the doors. And, you know, anyone listening should pause this show right now and head over to Hoaxbuster and watch his short clip where he rips the veil off Madame Curie. So critical to what we're going to talk about here. Although, to be clear, every story has to have elements to it. The story of nukes is no different, and actually maybe we should call it his story. So what Jason and I are are going to do in a lot of this is run down his story, all of the detail that was put in place to convince the world that it could be destroyed with the push of a button. Um, And there is overwhelming evidence out there for anyone who wants to scrutinize the, the video we have, the images from places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which, by the way, are almost interchangeable. If you do a search, Google, Google can't seem to see the difference between Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, but anyhow, I need to quit rambling and let you get to the list, Jason. Right. So before we even get to any of that, um, I'm, we're going to set the stage here with some of the the things that uh, are used image-wise. So the first one is going to be Mercury, which is Mercurius in Latin, and it's also associated with Hermes in Greek, the Roman god of eloquence, skill, trading, and thieving. He was the herald and the messenger of the gods. He was presider over Rhodes, or the crossroads, and conductor of departed souls to Hades, which is the afterlife. He is usually represented in art as a young man with winged sandals, a winged hat, and frequently carrying a caduceus. If you don't know what a caduceus is, that is the symbol that's used for the medical community with the intertwined snakes on the staff thingy. Yeah, I'm I'm about to go at that, but just to pull out the important elements that you laid down and what Mercury represents, um, trading and commerce and thieving, and of course he rules over the crossroads. That's going to be a big deal because the crossroads are included right in the symbol for Mercury, which I'll probably talk about more. Um, And again, go look at the hoax buster clip because he makes it very clear how often even the symbology is tied to the story. But let's talk a minute about the caduceus. I'm going to give you a definition here. And what I did is I went into places that were run by physicians and doctors, the actual lodges, places like Glasgow, um, to find out uh, what the basis for the caduceus symbol is. And what I discovered is apparently, 
I am told that mostly the caduceus symbol for medicine is used in the United States and not so much in too many other places. But here's the definition of what a caduceus is. The caduceus is a symbol which consists of two snakes entwined around a winged rod or a staff. This is sometime also known as the rod of Hermes. Hermes is Mercury. As a symbol of the Greek god Hermes, the caduceus is traditionally associated not, I repeat, not with medicine, but with trade and commerce, as Hermes was the messenger of the gods, the Greek equivalent of the Roman Mercury, and his rod has been used as the herald's staff. Now, this is critical because the, the alchemical idea of mercury represents water. Jason and I have covered the maritime law that rules this world. And what we are seeing here is a symbol implicated into the medical establishment in the West, at least in America, that has really nothing to do with medicine. It's about trade and commerce, and it's coming from a symbol that represents water. The true symbol I am told from my research that should have been used to represent medicine um, is called the rod of Asclepius, and that is associated with astrology and healing. And as we would find, even the physicians and doctors in these lodges are backing this idea that the rod of Asclepius should have been the actual true uh, emblem, uh, emblem for medicine. But anyhow, that was a bit winded. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, next up, I just kind of wanted to put this one out there, but we won't get to the the uh, actual person t until the end, and that's the the, the uh, figure of Galen, alias Galenus or Claudius Galenus, often anglicized as Galen, G-A-L-E-N, and better known as Galen of Pergamon, was a prominent Greek physician, surgeon, and philosopher in the Roman Empire who was supposed to be from the second century A.D. Yeah, you know, I read up a bit on this, and it's going to tie into another man with the same name uh, who apparently went all over the country trying to show people the falsehood of the dangers of basically rocks that have supposed nuclear radiation coming off them. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, that Galen is also was a member of the Asclepius Society, uh, which is maybe some of the oldest Greek me uh, medicine, supposedly. But anyhow, go ahead. Next, we have alchemy. This was a form of chemistry and speculative philosophy practiced in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and concerned principally with discovering methods for transmuting baser metals into gold and with finding a universal solvent and an elixir of life. Now, that's the physical aspect of it, but there's alchemy is also a very mental, psycho-spiritual kind of thing, as I think Rose about to tell you. Right. So there's a lot of people that will tell you that the idea of transmuting baser metals into gold was a cover story, and it's basically maybe relatable to the Buddhist idea of meditation, uh, self-purification, and, and reaching some higher level spiritually as a human being, going through the alchemical process. But I will point this out. Basically, it's about transmutation. And in the intro, I'm going to talk about What's it called here? Let me look up here. Spiro, spigeric process used with herbs, which anyone can look up, which kind of shows you a little bit about the al alchemical process. Um, there's a step called negrito or the blackening, uh, which is why I'm going to use that in the intro so people can go look. But anyhow, in the current age of deception, now that mercury and alchemy have been firmly tied to the nuclear hoax, um, it is my view that that alchemy, the process of alchemy, is actually being applied in this massive fraud to transmute the world mind from the higher-minded 
populist it could have been into a more lower-minded, animalistic mob um, that is based in fantasy, believing in fairy tales, and more easily controlled. Um, and anyone who wants to start to look into the process of alcohol, you know what? We'll just leave it to the intro. When I when I show the process that is used to make things like tinctures from herbs, people can go look that up and see some sort of an alchemical process um, being used to do that. And then you can maybe relate it out more widely. Go ahead, Jason. We have the, uh, I guess you call it a symbol, the, the something that's known as the Holy Trinity of Alchemy, which is sulfur, salt, and mercury. This is something that's repeated over and over and over again, and uh, all the alchemical writings and all that. Right. And anyone who wants to apply this holy trinity and what each of those elements, their colors, and their supposed meanings are, and then apply it back to the timeline of supposed nuclear history, will get a whole new view of what's going on here. And I will give you one example. The holy trinity of alchemy is sulfur, salt, and mercury, as Jason just said. Note, the use of trinity is the first bomb drop site. Um, I've actually been there. It's in a place called White Sands, which, again, echoes one of the colors. I think the white color is from salt, which is also made to be bitter. Um, it's all encoded. And as we get down the line, um, anyone who actually took the time to pause this clip and go look at Hoaxbuster's short clip will understand the importance of the rooster in all this. And we we're going to tie the rooster firmly um, to the timeline of supposed nuclear destruction. All right, so let's do the mainstream definition of radiation. The emission and propagation of energy in the form of rays or waves. The energy radiated or transmitted in the form of rays, waves, or particles. A stream of particles or electromagnetic waves that is emitted by the atoms and molecules of a radioactive substance as a result of nuclear decay. You know, this... This is where a lot of people are probably going to start to roll their eyes and begin to think that there's no way that any of this is just a story um, that was made up by, I guess, the hidden hand of ruling elites. The Galen stuff at the end, I have mixed feelings about. Um, part of it is the way his name ties back to the original Galen and the whole Asclepius Caduceus thing. But setting that aside, um, there are other people out there who are taking radioactive elements that we've been told are deadly as hell. You hold them, you die. They go right through you, all these rays, gamma rays and all these other things. But there are a few people out there who tried to show it's basically just heat. But in the same breath, they would say things like you could only have a certain amount of certain elements by weight and volume. And if you got them close together, there would be a blue flash. Anyone could go look up the Galen clips to see these things. But what it basically comes down to, and this is a tough thing, you know, I'm not a, a physicist of any kind. So when you begin to go at this, whether rays are actually coming off this in any way, seems there must be because the Geiger counter works. But it basically seems like for the average person to think about it, we're talking about heat here, I think. Yeah, that that's what Galen Windsor goes over. And, you know, he does a lot of demonstrations, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. So the official history on radiation's discovery. The modern understanding of ionizing radiation got its start in 1895 with Wil Wilhelm Röntgen. In the process of conducting various experiments in applying current to different vacuum tubes, he discovered that despite covering one in a screen to block light, there seemed to be rays penetrating through to react with a barium solution on a screen he placed nearby. After several experiments, including taking the first photo of his wife 
of his wife's hand and skeletal structure. With these new rays, he named them X-rays temporarily as a designation of something unknown, and the name ended up sticking. Yeah, I mean, this is where his story starts in the timeline to drawing the nuclear story. Um, And one thing that strikes me is Jason went way back to the beginning to try to find, you know, the foundational basis of the idea of rays and all these things. We all know we have x-rays, so we assume that they have been explained properly to us. But my point is this. When we get a little further in, you're going to hear about people getting Nobel Prizes and other things. It's funny who they chose to make public figures, Madame Curie and not even her husband who was there the whole time. So pay attention to the names that are being talked about here and then think about who was placed center stage for the whole world to look at, Madame Curie being the main one, still having her name echoed regularly on the Big Bang Theory, which should tell us all something. Go ahead, Jason. This discovery was followed in 1896 by Henry Becquerel's discovery that uranium salts gave off similar rays naturally. Though originally thinking that the rays were given off by phosphorescent uranium salts after prolonged exposure to the sun, he eventually abandoned this hypothesis. Through further experimentation, including non-phosphorescent uranium, he instead came to recognize that it was the material itself that gave off the rays. Although it was Henry Becquerel that discovered the phenomenon, it was his doctoral student, Marie Curie, who named it radioactivity. She would go on to do much more pioneering work with radioactive materials, including the discovery of additional radioactive elements, thorium, polonium, and radium. She was awarded the Nobel Prize twice, once alongside Henry Becquerel and her husband Pierre in physics for their work with radioactivity, and again years later in chemistry for her discovery of radium and polonium. She also conducted pioneering work in radiology, developing and deploying mobile X-ray machines for the battlefields of World War I. Now, there's some clarification that needs to be made on this Nobel Prize situation, however. Becquerel and both uh, Matt Marie Curie and her husband, Pierre, were honored for these discoveries when they shared the Nobel Prize in physics in 1903. The Nobel Foundation cited Becquerel for the extraordinary services that he has rendered by his discovery of spontaneous radioactivity and the Curies for the extraordinary services they have rendered by their joint researches on the radiation phenomena discovered by Professor Henry Becquerel. And the reason why we're pointing this out here is not to slam this this uh, woman doing great work, just the fact that this seems like typical social engineering where they're, they're only touting this person and neglecting the fact that the work that she was doing would have nothing to would not have happened if it wasn't for the other two's contributions. Right. And here you can see Mercury or Madame Curie being placed front and center stage when, um, you know, she supposedly played whatever role they want to assign her. But for the people who actually did go watch the host hoaxbuster clip, I'll point out a couple things. Um, she's credited with where's the element um, radium. She's credited with the radium thing. The, um, the periodic table uh, abbreviation for that is raw. The sun god, which is one of the trinity from alchemy. Um, of course, it's the sun. I believe that relates to sulfur. But again, for those who watch that clip, you will see the association of the date 1221 or December 21st in the breakdown of unveiling Madame Curie as Mercury. Well, 1221 is often, I mean, a lot of the time associated as the winter solstice, which is the weakest point in the sun's 
you know, circuit, annual circuit, however that works. Um, and it also breaks down to the number 33. But this, again, is another thing that plays through the timeline of supposed nuclear devastation, this kind of wintry idea of 1221. Um, and again, you know, we're talking about Nobel Prizes here, and I think I made a note here somewhere along the line. I may have lost it, but people need to go back and look at the people who are the founders of the Nobel Prize. They were basically some of the rich, richest people in Russia. They had to do with the czar, uh, oil companies, weapons, things like this. So we know who we're looking at here. Um, and the reason I point this out is because Barack Obama won the Nobel Prize. For what? What did Barack Obama ever do that was such a damn noble thing that is above all other people in this world, um, if you really think about it? So there's that. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Now, she was awarded a second prize alone in 1911 uh, in chemistry for the discovery of the elements radium and polonium, as we mentioned. But her husband had also con heavily contributed to this work. But since he had died in 1906, he's not credited for the work he had done. So, again, a cumulative, <laughs> a cumulative effort, but... Yeah, and 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 again, you know, in, in the hoax buster clip to belabor that point endlessly until everyone gets over there to see it, um, Pierre's killed at the crossroads, which is an element in the actual Mercury symbol. Um, it's broken down in that clip to show that a tire crushed his head. You just have to go look. But the one thing that jumps out at me is she's awarded a second prize in 1911. That encodes 9-11. What more do we need to say here? Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So the official story of Pierre Curie's demise is that he died in a street accident in Paris on April 19, 1906. Uh, he was crossing the busy Rue Dauphine in the rain at the, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but the Quai des Conti. He slipped and fell under a heavy horse-drawn cart. He died instantly when one of the wheels ran over his head, fracturing his skull. Statements made by his father and his lab assistant imply that Pierre Curie's characteristic absent-minded preoccupation with his thoughts contributed to his death. So... This sounds like the stereotypical absent-minded professor kind of thing. <laughs> now, his passing was in all the papers at the time because he was a well-known figure, but a particularly detailed and gruesome telling of the incident was in the newspaper Les Humanités, which was founded in 1904 by known socialists, and it later became a communist paper, and it, it ran for decades, uh, basically being a, a propaganda piece. Right. And, and again, in so many of these false narratives of his story, uh, we see the violent death that is required. One of the reasons I can point out why this is used is because people rubberneck, don't they? Um, when you're driving down the road and you see a gruesome accident, what happens? Everybody slows down and looks. It gets everyone's interest to put this kind of violent end in. But it does another thing, too, to the psyche. It helps place the fish hook for whatever this event is, to firmly embed it in memory a little more firmly than if it just would have been guy was walking down the street and he fell down and died. Um, but anyhow, go ahead, Jason. And by the way, this is completely broken down in the hoax buster clip and completely demonstrated to be tied exactly to the alchemical symbol for mercury. So nuclear fission is discovered in 1938 in Nazi Germany, less than a year before the start of World War II, while two chemists were bombarding elements with neutrons in their Berlin laboratory. This is said to be the basis of what could make an atomic weapon. You know, during the research um, that I was doing, uh, having looked at the list of the timeline that you wanted to present, Jason, I found a number of accounts of actual scientists who were putting forward reasons why um, the process of getting fissionable materials was not 
possible. And again, I'm not a physicist, but I, I looked at a lot of it. And now that I understand that nuclear destruction in the way it's been described to us is complete nonsense, um, I would not be surprised to understand there is a basis there. But the truth is, I just don't have an, a high enough science background to break that apart in a meaningful way. Anyhow, over to you. Well, I, I saw those things too. And basically, the way that they, they were splitting atoms is through high explosives. They're bombarding elements on a small scale, but to do that in a bomb is a different story altogether. Now, they do that nowadays in uh, the, the, the high-flying particle accelerators, but those kinds of things certainly didn't exist in the beginning of the 20th century. And with that, bombarding particles, sure, you can split an atom or a molecule, but how, how that's supposed to translate into something with a bunch of dynamite, I'm not really sure. I'm not a physicist either, but I can see how... how people making claims against an atomic weapon in the early days that would uh, that would hold water for me right but you know i'll state for the record here i don't accept that any of the particle accelerators around this world are doing what they are telling the world they're doing and again we see the complete occult symbols tied to them in front of the big one uh, CERN, mm -hmm. or what is it, she, Shiva, Shiva sitting there yep. or something yep. but you know as i began to break that down logically i came to one really kind of foundational conclusion. What we're showing every time with a particle accelerator is, okay, uh, these particles are zipping around this thing at the speed of light. Oh, there's the collision. Everyone look at the computer monitor. Look at this spirograph pattern we just got. That's a, a certain kind of particle. That's a certain kind of particle. Look at all this we're learning from this little graph that was just shown me on a computer. And it occurred to me, whoever made the software that did that is really the only person who understands what's truly going on. And while I can't say a lot more about it, I watched the announcement for the Higgs boson, and it was the most trite piece of propaganda I have ever witnessed. And I can't imagine how anyone could watch the announcement that was done. I think it's CERN. I don't remember. They were in a big auditorium and actually um, Higgs was there, the supposed founder of this thing. It's another story. It has all the earmarks of a story, and I don't accept for a second that there is any basis in this particle nonsense that we've been handed from the accelerators. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. So there's a note, note in history that uh, I see in, I remember from high school, history books and all that, and that's that Albert Einstein himself wrote to President Franklin Roosevelt during World War II about the possibility of the atomic bomb. In fact, he didn't do any of that. Uh, someone else wrote it, and he just signed it. But uh, anyway, here's an explanation of those events. Albert Einstein's famous role in the invention of the atomic bomb was signing a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt urging that the bomb be built. The splitting of the uranium atom in Germany in December 1938. Again, sorry, sorry, Jason. Again, we're at the winter solstice or the low point of the sun, which corresponds to the whole mercury idea. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Yeah, you're, and you're correct. The splitting of the uranium atom in Germany in December 1938, plus continued German aggression, led some physicists to fear that Germany might be working on an atomic bomb. Among those concerned were physicists Leo Zillard and Eugene Wigner. But Zillard and Wigner had no influence with those in power. So in July 1939, they explained the problem to someone who did, Albert Einstein. Sorry to break in again, but here we are in the same story at the summer solstice, or the height of the power of the sun. Sorry about that, Jason. Yeah, well, the, the, you see these significant dates always, you know, falling on these things, you know? Yeah. According to Zillard, Einstein said the possibility of a chain reaction, quote-unquote, never occurred to me. 
although Einstein was quick to understand the concept. After consulting with Einstein in August 1939, Zillard wrote a letter to President Roosevelt with Einstein's signature on it. The letter was delivered to Roosevelt in October 1939 by Alexander Sachs, a friend of the president. Germany had invaded Poland that previous month. The time was considered by them ripe for action. That October, the Briggs Committee was appointed to study uranium chain reactions. Man, there's there's so much here. I mean, so basically what you're saying, Jason, is the history that most of us understand in the United States is that Albert Einstein played a role in the atomic bomb. And in fact, what you're saying is he didn't play the role that's attributed to him. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we see, yeah, we see the typical fashioning of a story. Um, and that sets aside the dates where they're right at the winter solstice, which is the Mercury idea, part of the encoding of that. And then we're up at the summer solstice, which is always part of the kind of Masonic encoding, because so much of it is about the path of the sun. But when we get to historical figures like Einstein, I I can't accept any of it, man. I just can't. Um, there are so many problems when you begin to look, and then we have all these images of Einstein that seem to almost be publicity shots and nothing more. Um, but that really sets aside um, well, you know what? I'll, I'll adjust that. Well, no, maybe I'll address it right now. The idea that here this brilliant man, Einstein, had not even thought that there could be a chain reaction. Well, if people think back, uh, I think it's Oppenheimer. I had not thought about this before we did the show, so I hope I'm getting the people right anyhow. There was an idea that when they went to pop the first supposed nuclear explosion, that they weren't quite sure if there was going to be a chain reaction that would burn the atmosphere off the Earth. And that is patently ridiculous. So here we have these men of science who are supposedly in a pitched battle and they want to end this war and they need this nuke and this other country is going to get the nuke and all this nonsense. And they are willing to actually pop this bomb where they're stating they're not sure if it's going to completely fry the whole place. What sense does that make? For a man of science, you are taking fa facts, right, and balancing them. So the facts here are Germany could be doing this. We're doing this, which is all, of course, a story in my book. But the point is, um, we need to do this first. But wait a minute, we could destroy the whole place. So would you rather face a world where the enemy might get ahead of you or a place where you might destroy the whole joint? I'm just saying the, the problems with these storylines never end. But that was a bit of a rant. Anyhow, <laughs> Chase, back, back to you. After receiving the letter and a second one later on, just go signed by... Einstein, President Roosevelt saw neither the necessity nor the utility for such an atomic bomb project, but he did agree to proceed slowly. In late 1941, the American effort to design and build an atomic bomb received its code name of the Manhattan Project. At first, the research was based at only a few universities, Columbia University, the University of Chicago, and the University of California at Berkeley. A breakthrough occurred in December 1942 when Enrico Fermi led a group of physicists to produce the first controlled nuclear chain reaction under the grandstands of Stagg Field at the University of Chicago. After this milestone, funds were allocated more freely and the project advanced at a breakneck speed. Nuclear facilities were built at Oak Ridge, Tennessee and Hanford, Washington. The main assembly plant was built at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Robert Oppenheimer was put in charge of getting things together at Los Alamos. The final spendings on the project would end up totaling nearly $2 billion, and that's in 1930s, 1940s money, on research and development. The Manhattan Project had employed over 120,000 Americans. <clears throat> 
Later, it would come out that Oppenheimer had Communist Party ties earlier in his life, and in 1954, he had his security clearance stripped from him. He is found to be loyal to the United States, but his clearance was not reinstated. So here comes all the drama and mystery to hook your mind into the story, but there's a few things here. If anything we're saying here is correct and that nukes are nonsense, um, look at the amount of money we're talking about back in, what, 42 here? Two billion dollars. We didn't even begin to say the word billion very much until I think the end of the 80s or 90s. Back in the day, um, and it's not even close to 42, million was the big number that got batted around. But here's just an interesting side note. This was called the Manhattan Project. And as Jason just outlined,、um, a lot of the supposed beginnings, the chain reaction happened in Chicago. Does anyone know、um, the original name for the creation of Windows,、um, your computer Windows, that actually changed the world maybe more than anything has in the history of man? It was called the Chicago Project, as a side note. But anyhow, keep pushing, Jason. So, here's how the first atomic bomb was supposed to function. The nuclear test of the first detonation of a nuclear weapon was codenamed Trinity, but the atomic device was nicknamed the Gadget. The date of the Trinity test of July 16th, 1945. There it is again, Jason. We're right at the summer, the height of the sun's power, and they're about to do this big,、um, probably sulfur based sun like explosion from, from the alchemy playbook. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, it took place at 5 29 local time. It's normally considered the accepted beginning of the atomic age, AA 11, the beginning. And that is the meme you see repeated over and over and over again. If you listen to old newsreels, any kind of history books, you keep seeing atomic age, atomic age, atomic age. They, they weren't even really using the word nuclear yet. But that's just a side note. The Gadgen was an implosion type plutonium device, which means the plutonium core is surrounded by many small explosives. These compress the pl- plutonium and bring it closer to the point of causing it to go supercritical. All, those, all these wires are attached to different explosives, which burn at different frequencies. The trick of the 20 explosions is that they push the pieces of uranium or plutonium, whichever one the bomb, particular bomb has to, happens to be using. Compresses them together into a ball with an overcritical mass, which would then explode. This had to be timed extremely accurately. Microseconds of difference would make the ball lopsided and less effective. Part of the solution was to make each and every cable the same length, which is why when you look at pictures of the gadget, it looks like a great big ball with wires all over it. So, this is the exact process that so many of the scientists who are trying to show that this is not possible were attacking, where I just don't have high enough math skills or, or other things like physics and any number of high level scientific disciplines.、Um, but I, I know that what we're looking at is fraud. So, I think there's probably absolute truth to what they're doing. But if we look at the numbers that have been put forward, not only are we at, right at the summer solstice, We're at July 16, which in numerology would break down to 77, or 77, which is Ian Zion or 77, or, you know, I've done the whole Crowley and,、uh, you know, I've gone over that endlessly. But the date is 1945, which can also encode 9 11. As we get into the time, we see 29, which often encodes 9 11 because 9 and 2 is 11. So you've made the 11 from the 2 and 9. And the 2 actually. When you look at 11, is two ones, which stands as a two. And then, of course, the end in the seconds is 21, which is black jap. You know, I've, I've gone over that endlessly. So we see all the encoded elements here, and I would urge everyone to go take a look at the scientists who are trying to say that what is being described here cannot possibly be pulled off. Back to you, Jason.
And, and this is why we mentioned the Trinity thing at the beginning is because that's what this project was codenamed for the first blast. Right. The alchemical Trinity um, getting ready to transmute the world mind to believe in the scariest fairy tale of all time. The world can end with the push of a button. Now, right from the beginning, there are huge questions about what exactly is being witnessed on the uh the atomic bomb footage of this first blast. The first Trinity blast looks like it could have just been a, a whole lot of conventional explosives that were just stacked on top of each other, as opposed to some new esoteric device whose functionality is really never fully explained. Uh, we will see much more of this as bombings continue, that, that things just don't quite look right. Now, the other thing that uh, is interesting about the first Trinity blast is it's admitted that they had a conventional setup that they blew up. Right. Of, of just TNT, just lots of TNT to, they, they said for, as a comparison. So what is it that we see if, if we're looking at true footage from that time period? Are we just seeing a conventional blast, a very big one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying yes. Um, some, some of the footage to me looks like it's completely fabricated or um, what's it called when you're laying footage over footage in the Composite. old way? Yeah, composite um, and this kind of thing, maybe akin to what we would do in Photoshop's this today with layering. Um, the Hiroshima blast uh, is that because there are two plumes that have been overlaid on each other. But um, to get back to this, anyone out there who served in the military or anyone out there who has been around explosives that even you know even an M80, an M80 is quite a pop for a person who's never really seen. Uh, an explosive. But if you've ever seen a stick of dynamite go off or something a bit bigger than a firecracker, there is one thing that every person listening to this knows. It is violent as hell and it happens so damn fast, you really couldn't even blink your eyes quick enough to to prevent you know, the, the, the concussion that's going to hit you. Um, it's just a very quick, violent thing. When you begin to review blast footage of supposed nukes, the first thing you come away with is, why is it so slow? It's almost like they took conventional explosives and ran them at a high frame rate and then slowed it down. But there's more. Mushroom clouds can be made from conventional explosives. Anyone can go on the web and prove this to themselves. Also, it is stated over and over that any blast of size does create what's called radiation of some sort. So that's something to think about. But as Jason pointed out, there was... I forget. They, they were saying that they were going to pop so many kilotons um, of nuclear, you know, a, a nuclear blast of so many kilotons, which equated to that many tons in TNT. And there is footage out there of military men stacking box after box after box of TNT in Yucca Flats or wherever it was um, out there. And so my contention is that if you go out and look at the nuclear blast, some of the first things you'll notice the explosions are slow, which is not typical of what we know about explosions. No two nuclear blasts look the same. Some of them have these weird streamers that are going up into the air. Most of the footage I found of that is right when the video cuts on, you can detect that these smoking streamers are already there and then the blast goes off. And when the blast goes off, it's almost like they're smoking wires or something because they get pushed in this weird way. Not sure what that's about, but clearly the smoking streamers are there before the blast. Um, and the main tell here is why is it that every one of them looks different? There's even 
even ones where they're showing you on a 300-foot tower a supposed nuke being popped early on, and they show you a whole three seconds of it, and it's clearly a conventional explosion. Just go scrutinize these footage and think about the things I've mentioned here. Go and watch, just just type in big explosions on YouTube, because this is what I did. I started comparing things, and one of the ones that really got me was a rocket exploding on takeoff. I believe it was a Russian one, and it looked just like a nuclear blast. It was just the color was right, the the way everything, uh, the mushroom cloud and, and all of that, except for the fact that it happened really fast. It happened exactly as you would expect an explosion. Boom. And it, you know, everything went up. So go ahead and do your own homework on that, you know? Yeah. When you start to scrutinize, we'll get to it later. But the Bikini Atoll, um, there are so many problems with that blast footage. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So as everyone knows, we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's uh, That comes next after they, they say that, okay, well, this bomb works. Hiroshima is hit on August 6th. 1945. It's a uranium bomb that's stated to have been exploded 1,850 feet in the air for maximum explosive effect, and it was named Little Boy. It is said to have had an effect of 15 kilotons of TNT. This was the first time this simpler type of bomb was tested, by the way. They had not tried that exact style of bomb according to mainstream history before. One had never been exploded. You know... I would urge people to go back and look at some of the footage of the supposed Hiroshima blast. There are so many problems that the list I began to generate with Hiroshima, and I'm not the only person doing this. There are other people out there who had independently of what I was thinking pointed out many of the same things and even more than the things I was thinking of. But the the actual cloud, if you go look at it, it looks like there was an overlay. It looks like there's two plumes that were overlaid in some of the footage. But as I began to look for a way to try to demonstrate to the average person who's been told their whole life that nukes are real and, you know, to try to help them get to a point where they can consider what we're saying, I started going to the topography of Hiroshima because I noticed in a lot of the after the supposed bomb blast, it was a lot of very flat, long shots with nothing on the horizon. As I went into the uh, topography and I spent well over a year in Japan, and almost all of Japan has mountainous areas in it. What you see is Hiroshima is like on a harbor and a river, a couple rivers actually, um, where they come together is supposedly their ground zero, um, where that little dome is, the the peace monument is what they call it, or something like that is still standing. Um, And there's problems with that, which I'll address in the intro. What you see is that the topography in a lot of these things doesn't seem to match. And this is a hard thing to see because you would expect to see the mountainous regions around the outside. But, you know, before I get too far into this, Jason, I'll let you keep pushing a little further into this. The Nagasaki bomb is a plutonium bomb and named Fat Man, and it was exploded 1,840 feet above the city with an estimated force of 22 kilotons of TNT. Fat Man was more complex, and it was the same kind of bomb as the gadget. Okay, go ahead. Keep pushing through. And I would point out for everyone, if you do a search for Hiroshima, you know, nuclear blast images, and then you do the same thing with Nagasaki, you'll see that the Google algorithm can't seem to seem to differentiate go ahead jason not just that but it'll show you pictures that end up being tokyo as well like when you start looking at all these photos you start finding out that pictures of hiroshima nagasaki and tokyo are all interchangeable and it's all after they've been firebombed and 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 the damage all looks basically the same 
Right. Um, it does look the same. And, and actually, there are shots of supposed Hiroshima from an aerial or a very high vantage point where it seems to me it might well be models. Um, and part of the tell in that particular footage is that nothing is moving. In certain pieces of the footing, like footage, you'll see like one little sampan boat, you know, a traditional Japanese boat with a person way off, silhouetted, moving. And it's the only thing moving in all the shot. But in these other ones, nothing is moving anywhere. And for the record, there was never a time um, before or after the supposed blast of Hiroshima when people weren't there. The same is true of Nagasaki, and we'll get into this, because we're told to this day people can't go back to the Bikini Atoll. It's just more problems with the logic of all this, and that even sets aside that there was never a time when plants and animals weren't, you know, if it was firebombed or if this was shot with models within weeks, the plants were coming back. And plants are not exempt from what radiation does to the, a living cell. Um, go ahead, Jason. All right, so the following points I'm going to get to are things I, I culled together from all over the place. So they're not in any particular order, but I tried to get them, if things went hand in hand, put them next to each other. So the very first one that I found out is the standard photo used to show the mushroom cloud over Hiroshima is actually, in fact, a photo of a raging firestorm. It's not the actual uh, atomic bomb explosion. It's, it's something else that was going on, and they use that one for dramatic effect. It's used just as, as an advertisement. This is what an atomic bomb, look how big and scary it is. This immediately calls into question whether any of the photos or videos that we've seen regarding the bombings of Hiroshima or Nagasaki are what they claim to be. There it is, man. Um, you know, I've covered before on this channel what marketing is. Marketing is a manipulation of human emotion designed to get that human or the humans that experience the marketing to believe or act in a way they would not have otherwise done had they not seen the marketing piece. The minute you begin to add marketing in this way into an event, it should tell you something about the event. If these were real events and they were really filmed, there is zero need for any of this nonsense. And I can't say anything more than that. Now, death rates post-explosion at Hiroshima and Nagasaki over the, the years since are not higher than anywhere else. Three days after the Hiroshima bombing, a trolley was running again and people were all over the place because lots of cities were devastated at this point. Uh, this, is, this is the end of the war and Japan had, had the snot bombed out of it anyway. So people, people were there, you know, in this post-nuclear explosion. So here's another huge thing that does not jive with what we were all told. You know, we were told that when, when a nuke was popped somewhere, that for hundreds or thousands of years, the half-life of this terrible radiation poisoning that was everywhere was going to be a problem to deal with. And as I just mentioned, I think as late as 2013, they were still claiming no one can go back to the Bikini Atoll for some reason, when in fact, there has never been a time when people were not at Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, to include plant life and animals. And we were told that all these birth defects and all these other things were going to come out of it. This is demonstrable nonsense. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps and we made it to Japan, they put you through like this little 
one half a day class, you know, what you can expect and what the rules are in this new area of the world you are. And they put you on a trip to, in my case, Okinawa, um, to, so you can experience, you can choose which little day trip you go on to begin to experience this new place you're in. Um, some of the people were stating openly that they were going to go to Hiroshima. And the question came up, how is it possible, um, that people can go to Hiroshima when we were told the half-life of all this radioactive poisoning was a problem and no one really had an answer. But I would further point out they popped a nuke out of where two rivers and they're claiming they popped a nuke where these two rivers converge and go out to the ocean. So if there was any truth to all this radioactive nonsense we've been told, they would have polluted a whole fresh water system dumping into the ocean. And again, really, is this what people do? Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Right. Now, the, the explanation for that is because they were detonated high up in the air that the fallout wasn't that bad. But I don't know. That just doesn't make sense to me. But they also claim that, <laughs> that the yields uh, of the explosions were incredibly inefficient and that only a small percentage of the uranium and or plutonium was actually used in the explosion. And that as the years went by, they got better at getting more out of it, more bang, basically. So... I would suggest you can't have it both ways. So uh, apparently their excuse is it was a nuke, just a terrible nuke. And actually, there was hardly any nuke in it. <laughs> you know, come on now. Well, what I don't understand is if a chain reaction goes off, why would it not use all the material? That's like saying some of the gunpowder in the pile you just lit off just decided right. not to explode. It's like that doesn't even make sense. It's nonsense. And, and I would suggest that if you were really dropping a real nuke somewhere, would you really be doing that over fresh water supplies and, you know, really doing it in the ocean at the Bikini Atoll? Are these really what you would be doing with something you're telling the world has a half-life of hundreds or thousands of years that will create birth defects? But, you know, we I will look at Chernobyl in the intro and show that this is complete nonsense. Um, and anyone can go back and look at Chernobyl as well. So go ahead keep pushing because it gets better because here comes the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Uh, the bank at ground zero of Hiroshima, it remains standing to this day. Just wasn't touched. Now, <laughs> eight Jesuits hiding in their church survived the blast at ground zero to tell the tale, and they claim to be spared only by the intervention of the Virgin Mary. Naturally, man, if you're going to have a tale of this magnitude, the Jesuits have to be on board, don't they? Um, keep on pushing with the Jesuits, man. Outside of the Jesuits, there was no significant reporting from either Hiroshima or Nagasaki for at least a month. In fact, it seems that both cities were actually shut down from a media standpoint for months. There was no influx of Western reporters. The nuclear narrative was developed by the Pentagon from all we can tell. It was immediately after that the bombings were made a crime to actually discuss it. Punishable by death in both the United States and Japan, you couldn't discuss nuclear attacks or the technology that created them. The restricted data clauses of the U.S. Atomic Energy Act specifies that all nuclear weapons-related information is to be considered classified unless explicitly declassified and makes no distinction about whether the information was created in a laboratory by a government scientist or anywhere else in the world by private citizens. So there is your information lockdown from day one. 
So here's the tell, isn't it? You know, punishable by death, really. So if if <laughs> if someone happened to have been able to see um, the supposed devastation and talked about it and said no nuke was dropped at all, um, they they could be killed, I guess. Um, although I think it's all nonsense. But things like this are really a tell. When real events happen in this world, real information comes out of those events. When you see people locking down the events um, and locking down information about the events, and Jason's going to get further into this about just how many people could get cameras in there or report on it in the Western world, and it's just a huge tell, man. Go ahead, Jason. The entire atom bomb narrative that seems to be created by the Pentagon was delivered to the public via a single writer from the New York Times who later turned out to be on the Pentagon payroll. This writer appears to be a, a man named Lipman Siu, a Lithuanian Jew who took the name of William L. Lawrence. In his own writings, he states that he was selected by the heads of the Atomic Bomb Project as sole writer in public relations. Lawrence sat in the, is supposed to have sat in the co-pilot seat, although we can't really prove this, of the B-29 on the Nagasaki bombing run of a, August 8th, 1945. <laughs> there it is again, man. 9-11 encoded in the type of plane they're using. And this is just a, a prime example of it's not just the fox in charge of the hen house. It's the fox building the hen house and then being in charge of the hen house. Keep on going, man. So the initial reporting just saying that the bombs were dropped were done by a man named Wilfred Burchett. And then everything from that point on came from Lawrence. Burchett, it turns out, was a communist who hated America, and he reportedly ended up on the Kremlin's payroll. <laughs> Got to get the drama, the mystery, and the intrigue in there, you know, so people don't pay too much attention to the details, I guess. Now, to, to uh, go more on Lawrence, he was the only reporter to cover the development of the atomic bomb, to see the initial bomb testing, which would be the Trinity blast from 20 miles away, and to be reporting from Nagasaki. In other words, only one reporter who was being paid by the U.S. War Department because it was called the War Department back then, not the Department of Defense, provided the entirety of the initial civilian narrative for the testing of nuclear devices and the bombing of Nagasaki. It was roughly the same for both Hiroshima and Nagasaki that reporters were not allowed to visit. There are actually newsreels where they have something called News Knob or some nonsense where they're advertising that all the press could come in. But I'll point something out here. We are told that 65 miles from Las Vegas, and again, this encodes 11. Earlier, um, the Atomic Age, which is AA and 11, and as I pointed out before, is the beginning of the casting of a spell. 65 miles from Vegas, which is numerically or numeral numerologically 11, the casting of a spell, we're told that hundreds of nuclear blasts went off and that people were going all over the place. They were going to where the blast happened. They were so many miles this way, that way. How is it that that place is not completely radioactive. I mean, go look up how many blasts were supposedly done at the Nevada test site, which is 65 miles from Las Vegas. But the story gets a bit better um, to veer away a bit from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We are told that the city of Vegas, which at the time was run by the mob, this magical group, which was public enemy number one, but was for some reason allowed to build a complete city in the middle of the desert to do prostitution, drugs, gambling, all these things where they did whatever they wanted. So go figure. But they had viewing parties 
And there are newsreels of this. They even had showgirls wearing mushroom cloud type bikinis and hairdos with the whole mushroom cloud thing. When you go look at it, it is nonsensical beyond belief. But I would add, how is it that 65 miles from Vegas, all these hundreds of nukes were popped and there's no problem, no radiation, no nothing. Anyhow. Now, this next point is really interesting and may actually be the explanation. A squadron of 66 bombers was directed to, a, to attack a town called Imabari. In the early, early morning of August 6th, 666, yep. the morning of the A-bomb, it was directed to attack Imabari again. But it, that city had already been bombed twice and pretty much leveled. So this bombing squadron might have actually been the thing that firebombed Hiroshima. Yeah, these, this is where it gets hard to know um, what actually happened to Hiroshima and are the images we're looking at staged? Are they on a set somewhere? Are they models? I think there is at least some video out there that looks to be models. And I've mentioned before that in the early black and white sci-fi era, they began to figure out certain types of lenses filming in certain ways would allow you to make kick-butt models and really pass them off as real landscapes or objects. But this is where it gets hard, and uh, I think to know this, we would really have to you know, dedicate like a whole show to doing nothing more than examining what actually happened in Hiroshima. Now, this next point is also very interesting. Initial reports in Japan were that Hiroshima was firebombed. Right. And I saw this as well. And when you begin to consider that the death count, you know, so so here you're being told that there's this new doomsday weapon and it was dropped on Japan. And then the emperor, I guess, didn't even know how to surrender. And Russia had to get involved. All this other nonsense, we're told. And they did Nagasaki a short while later. And then the war was ended because of this doomsday bomb. Yet the death rate, it was no more than anywhere else. And we knew the firebombing was being reported in other cities that looked just about the same. And when you look at um, what's being presented as Hiroshima footage, what you see is buildings that couldn't burn still standing. And so the explanation became that a concrete reinforced building couldn't be destroyed by nukes was one of the excuses they used. But just when you begin to examine it down to, to brass tacks, you begin to see the nonsense of it all. Now, as far as that initial report of Hiroshima being firebombed, AP, which is the Associated Press, which was the be-all, end-all of right. Western media throughout most of the 20th century, they filed the same report. So that's what they reported. Well, it's kind of weird, too, because um, in the modern day, when you start to talk about like an AP, it's it's what tends to happen in the modern age is this one story comes from wherever it comes to, and it gets like in this pool, and then it's fed out all over the place. So for this report to have even been filed by the AP is really a telling thing to me. Well, especially since it's wartime and they were monitoring everything closely. So, you know, that's the one that really jumped out at me is like that was the official narrative at first. Right. Now, in the aftermath of the explosion, as we discussed uh, briefly earlier, if you look at photos of Hiroshima, Nagasaki and Tokyo, they don't look any different than the, the Tokyo firebombings. We know that they, they bombed the living bejesus out of Tokyo and all the photos pretty much are interchangeable and look the same. So here's my problem, and this is where I have a real conflict when I was going over this because I just didn't have time to do all the different little aspects of it I want. You know, I understand that the theater of war is called the theater of war for a reason. I served during the first Gulf War and learned quite a bit 
about what goes on in a supposed war, having friends all over the place during that whole thing. But when I took apart December 7th and Pearl Harbor and Midway, I walked away with a whole other version than I was told in the Marine Corps because the island chain is one of the big claims to frames for, for the Marines. Um, it would be very interesting to be able to have the time to actually try to go in and see what really did. Did something really this massive happen in Tokyo and Nagasaki and Hiroshima? The problem here is we're at the mercy of newsreels from the United States, from Britain, um, the AP and other places. There seems to be very little material that is not associated with authority. So there's my kind of conflict where I don't trust the history we've been handed, but I just have not I just don't have enough time in my life right now to go in and begin to take it apart. But I, I guess the reason for that long-winded <laughs> paragraph was that it is called the theater of war for a reason. Wars are not happening in the way that they're being explained by authority. No, no, not at all. And they control the uh, the, the stream of data, especially in the right. earlier 20th century. And here's the other thing about that. People back then had complete and utter trust of their government for the most part. So if they re something got released and people received it, they took it as gospel. Right. So we're almost to the top of the hour. Why don't you push through four more, Jason, and then we'll put a break point. Uh, I'm almost certain that the second portion of this that gets posted on the new website is going to go way over an hour. Um, and a lot of it has very telling stuff. And also we cover bikini and other things, the bikini atoll in there. But why don't you just quickly push through the, the next four next four items? In Hiroshima, numerous buildings are standing along with erect tree stumps. Predictions of endless radiation poisoning for thousands of years proved untrue. Today, Hiroshima and Nagasaki's radiation levels are normal. Outdoor shadows and other dramatic evidences of the Hiroshima bombing seem to be faked. They just, they don't look right. They don't, they don't match up with what they should be. Military officers were asked to exaggerate the injury count. The narrative surrounding the dropping of the Hiroshima bombing is reportedly inaccurate. Levers were pulled to drop the bomb but the automatic system actually did the job. And the automatic targeting system itself was an inaccurate device that reportedly might drop bombs miles from where the pilot hoped to deliver them. The odds that both bombs ended up delivering effective blasts are surprisingly low. So let's just point out the fact that this would have been analog machines doing the, uh, the, the work here, not some sort of high-tech digital computer that's going to be precise like today. Right. Um, we're going to have to cut this somewhere, Jason. And uh, just for people... To know, as we get into the second hour, we're going to begin to cover some things about the, the the Nagasaki narrative, how the story was completely jumbled and just, you know, real events have a real narrative. Um, and that's all there is to it. And I've used the analogy before of, say, a new truck gets made in the world. Well, you can look up how many horsepower it has, what colors it comes in, how many doors it has. The narrative exists. And around the Nagasaki bombing, there's this big jumble of nonsense to Again, I guess, keep people from looking at details carefully. But anyhow, that – well, Jason, do you have anything you want to add before I make the break? Now, the second hour, we're going to finish going through the massive inconsistencies of Hiroshima Nagasaki. And the, the comparison I, I make to this is it's sort of like this is the Apollo moon landings of, of the nuclear world. Just tons of inconsistencies that you can find just by looking at it yourself. 
Right. And, you know, that kind of sets aside um, what we get convinced. So many of the fairy tales we become convinced of in this world, if we had never been told anything about them and they were introduced to us when we were already at an adult level, um, they would be unbelievable. This guy can push a red button and the whole world can be destroyed. But anyhow, um, I'll leave this be for the second hour. Uh, that brings us to the top of the hour for Crow Triple Seven Radio podcast. This is episode 30, uh, I'm sorry, 53 with Jason Lindgren covering the nuclear devast, you know, the, the nuclear power hoax. Um, and I guess before I cut it, I should say this, um, nuclear power plants. A lot of people out there are going to be thinking about nuclear power plants. I guess I would invite you to go watch Galen, um, though I did. Did not do a lot of background on him. I know it's a popular clip. I'm not sure exactly what to think about the man. Um, the claim being made there is that what nuclear electrical generation plants are about is the most high-tech, clean way to boil water. So keep that in mind because I know a lot of people are going to be thinking about it. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour. Hope to see you all over at the new site at crow 7 radiocom Cheers. <laughs> 